Hello and welcome back to episode 36 of Double Reel, the podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films and the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome James. Thanks for that introduction, it's good to be back for the second reel. Last week we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases and chat about how we're fitting film watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films John Wick Chapter 4, Bandit, Young E and Renfield. We also have my look at David Cronenberg's M. Butterfly and James's look at the Nick Cage classic Lord of War. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful you could take a couple of minutes to leave a five-star review about us wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, starting with Classics and Recommended, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's Spike Lee's 25th Hour. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features the Ridley Scott con artist film Matchstick Men. Then it's The One That Got Away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 36, we look at Shekhar Kapoor's Indian sci-fi project, Pani. We close our features episode with the remake, Hate Watch. This month, we discuss the new version of zombie classic, Dawn of the Dead. Next week, it's the big conversation where we discuss a topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First, we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. Our hidden gem is about con artists, and I asked on the socials for people's favourites in that genre. Andy said The Usual Suspects. Interesting, I didn't think of that as a conman film. I'm not sure if that's actually a spoiler. Uh, Cole says Paper Moon, an oldie from the 70s. A lot of people mentioned Catch Me If You Can, which is about a con man, but not quite in the actual con man genre. More on that later. Uh, Stan called out House of Games. Yes, that's a classic. A few others, Nine Queens, my favourite. Lucky Number Slevin, The Grifters, and Fletch says The Best Offer is a brilliant film and hardly anyone has seen it. On our classic 25th hour, Peter says this was a very serious version of that storyline. Nowadays, every film seems to think going to jail would be like Will Ferrell in Get Hard. On our one that got away, Parney, Farrar says, unfortunately, this film is going to be shelved. Neither Hollywood nor Bollywood are prepared to fund a story of this nature. On our remake, Hate Watch, Dawn of the Dead, Paul says, I love the original, but I really like the new version too, because it's totally different. Jeremy says, I prefer the remake. It has better effects and is more intense. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one of both of us hasn't seen before, and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films, I mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from surrealist fantasy The City of Lost Children, to 70s conspiracy thriller The Parallax View. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet, and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list, and you can make recommendations of your own there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month is part of our theme of films that came out when I was 30. We look at one of Spike Lee's most highly rated films, a character-driven crime and punishment drama in the shadow of 9-11. The classics and recommended feature for episode 36 is 25th Hour. So, James, uh, what's your background of this film? Were you aware of it before we decided to do it for the pod, or had you heard about it or anything like that? I had no idea. It seemed like it was a very niche and, you know, almost unheard of film. Um, I had no idea that Edward Norton had made a film with Spike Lee that was written by the guy who wrote Game of Thrones. Yeah, that, that, that that's, that's it's quite big, isn't it? So Spike Lee was going through... I, 
it, it's hard to pick a face of Spike Lee's career. He just tends to do what he does, uh, and he just pops up and does this stuff. This is, again, it's written by David Benioff, who went on to be one of the creators of, of Game of Thrones. Um, this film is really highly rated, I think more so in America. I'm not sure how big it has ever been over here. It's quite a... Um, it's, I mean, it's it's quite a big cast when you look at the people. You've got people like Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, Brian Cox is in it, uh, Rosario Dawson, and it's uh, it's a weird one. I mean, the the time frame in which it was filmed it, it again makes it quite interesting because it's a uh, it's a very specific time and place which wasn't deliberate. Nine Eleven kind of more or less just happened the previous autumn, and this is this film was sort of. F- shot in the the middle of 2002 in New York um so I don't know if you were aware that all of that stuff about the the aftermath of 9-11 that wasn't originally in the script but Spike Lee thought it would be like impossible not to address it if you're making a film there and then do you know what I mean yeah um so the the twenty fifth hour is is sort of I think it's an American expression and it's a turn it's a sort of figure of speech meaning it's the moment when times run out you know if if a normal day's got twenty four hours in it the twenty fifth hour is the time when you know everything's over and done with last uh, resort kind of thing yeah and and in this instance the twenty fifth hour it's kind of got a double meaning because at the start of the film uh, Ed, Edward Norton, Norton's character has got um, twenty four hours before. Uh, he has got to go to jail. So the twenty fifth hour is when it's all over for him, kind of thing. So that that that's the setup. Um, it, it jumps around a little bit in time, doesn't it? I mean, what what did you think of those time jumps? The first bit is like clearly some time before everything, because in the opening scene, it's about Edward Norton finding a dog, and then it's clearly a few years later when when the, the main story begins. What did you think of that little time jump at the start? Um, yeah, I think it was. It was I think it was good for establishing just the, how they he sort of got into that kind of mess. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But, you know, by showing that kind of time jump, that's how it was then, look how it is now. I thought that was a an effective way of portraying that. Yeah, it, it, it establishes character as well, I guess, where the way Edward Norton is interested in the dog and everything else. But yeah. it also tells you that the, the setting he's working in, that he's clearly working with gangsters. Um, so, obviously, this revolves around someone who is a criminal who's about to go to, to jail for crimes he's clearly committed. Um, and then we follow his story. So, the film depends somewhat on your ability to sympathise with Ed, Edward Norton's character. So, wh- what did you think of the way that played out in, in the film about him as a character and whether you care whether he goes to jail, to be honest? I personally didn't really care because he's a bit of a scumbag, isn't he? Um, you know... Um, you know, I don't really have much sympathy for drug dealers. Um, but it's weird that you sort of, like, you're kind of interested in what this guy's doing and, like, how is how it is going to play out for him. Do you know what I mean? Like, you shouldn't really care because he isn't a great guy, but then you're kind of like, huh, what's going on with this guy? It was weird. That's how it was for me. I found it very strange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Spike Lee's gone to some trouble to try and humanise Edward Norton as a character, but I also think he doesn't make excuses for him. I mean, he does say, I mean, you get a flashback or you get some discussion in which it sounds like Edward Norton only got involved in some sort of criminal activity because his dad was in trouble. Um, And uh, it's kind of, he lived in an area that's that close to, to where criminals are and that close to where kind of drug dealers and everything else, anything else is. And it, it kind of says, all right, people make their own choices and he made a choice and he could have, you know, 
you know, he's he's got to own what he's done. But I think he also kind of highlights that this this wouldn't have happened to someone who wasn't kind of so close to the edge of, of legal and illegal. Do you know what I mean? Just happened to be living where he was living, you know? Um, I thought, uh, I mean, for me, I thought it was interesting that Spike Lee was kind of telling a story, you know, it, it's guys from the same neighborhood and some of them turned out differently. One of them turned into kind of a, you know, sort of successful in the city. One of them's kind of, uh, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character's kind of not really moved on. You know, he's still a, a, he's just a teacher at the school that he grew up in. He's kind of, uh, you know, you feel like he hasn't kind of progressed much as a person. And Edward Norton's sort of got, gone down the criminal route. It's interesting that I, I think Spike Lee's told this this kind of story before with black characters and he's sort of empathised with them in a similar way. It's like, look, they are where they are. Some people are going to get caught in that trap and some people aren't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I agree. It was... Um... Yeah, I don't know. I... I don't know how to describe it. You've described it quite nicely, but I couldn't make as much sense of how I felt towards those kind of the storyline and the main characters as you have. I found it very bizarre because I felt like you shouldn't really care, but you do. I no, I think you're feeling exactly the way you're meant to feel about it, mate. To be honest, I think it's a case of uh, it's like they're, they're they're all they're all human beings. Everyone involved is a person. And, you know, they've made their choices. Uh, I guess if you're going to make an argument for Edward Norton's character, right, just I mean, to give, to give the audience a bit of a background, when he's a teenager, he, he goes and works as a runner for the local criminals because his dad's got into trouble. I think his dad's either an alcoholic or he's having trouble with his business or something. And in order to get his dad out from under a terrible situation, he does a bit of work and makes a bit of money on the side but you also get the feeling that he was a bit like you know they, they talk about him having been a gifted basketball player when, when he was a kid and you know he was smart and he could have made something else of himself but he, he, almost, he almost had he almost had something in him he also had he almost had a bit of a wild streak which meant he was in danger of going down that road and it, it feels to me like Spike Lee was going up you know I'm, I'm not sugarcoating it this guy had something in him which meant there was a risk he was going to go down that road but he's still a it's like I think what Spike Lee manages to do, he manages to characterise Edward Norton as a person who, you know, you can relate to. His friends remember him, and he has conversations with friends, and he acts like a normal person. But he's got this, like, streak of, of, of personality, which has got him into that life. And, you know, but having grown up with that person, you you, you don't part, you, you don't forget the person that you know and love and everything else. He just happens to have gone down the wrong road. It reminded me a little bit of how, you know, De Niro and Scorsese and people like that would talk about how guys they grew up with in the neighbourhood ended up being gangsters in later life, you know? Yeah. It's... And it's like, it, it, I think it's because he creates that neighbourhood. He creates that sort of neighbourhood of, of New York. It's one of New York's neighbourhoods and you kind of know everybody. And when you know everybody and you've been in their house and you've met them and you have dinner with them and you drink with them, you... you you, you know, they are a human being to you, even though one of his best friends, you deserve what's happening to me. Do you know what I mean? You, you've done it, you know? Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because they are just, they are people at the end of the day, but some of them, you know, can kind of fall down that path that, that Monty obviously falls down. Um, but I think, the, the thing to demonstrate that he is just, you know, a normal guy that, is I think at heart and a decent person is that you know he takes on a dog and looks after it, and you know takes care of it for a few years. Um, 
So I think I think and I, that's, I suppose that's quite an easy way to show that someone is a like a normal, you know, person because all oh, they looked after a dog. Um, that's I feel that's quite a quick way to do it, but it's demonstrated in other ways as well. Like you know, just everyone knows everyone. They're chatting, they get on with everyone. He obviously has a network of people that it's like it's almost like he had two kind of different lives, didn't he? Yeah. So you see him speaking to the Russian mobsters, and what's his name, Kostya, the guy who spoiler betrays him. Yeah, and uh, Nikolai, and you see him talking with those guys, and it's like, oh, he's dealing with these fucking nasty people, and then he speaks to people like Jacob and mm-hmm. Frank, and all these people are just guys that are that he knows. So I think that was an effective way of showing that, look, this guy is a normal guy. He's also this is just his business. That's how he makes his money because he didn't have any. Well, he he turned to something else because maybe he felt like he didn't have anything he could turn to. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, from a character point of view, it, basically, I think what Spike Lee's saying is that he's both of those people. Yeah. You know, he's not—he's not just a criminal. He's—he's the, he's the guy. He's the friend and everything else, but he's still the criminal. Um, which I thought was—you know—which I thought was interesting. The the nine eleven stuff. How did that? How did that feel for you in the film? I think it's probably—it's probably the most effective. I don't want to say depiction of nine eleven, but it felt like it was just showing you how people felt. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's the films that center around the grief of 9-11 i always feel like they're just it's a bit awkward you know the nicholas cage film world trade center that was a, a weird film for me that might be a film i end up fucking watching for this podcast actually. <laughs> yeah um and then what's the one with robert pattinson where it focuses on him oh i'm not sure am i making that up and it's uh it's focusing on the grief of a guy and it's just uh turns out he works in the world trade center and you know what I mean? I feel like the World Trade Center has become oh, a kind it, of... Isn't that that film where basically for almost all of the film, it's just, yeah, Remember Me. And basically it's a romantic drama. and then it, But then at the very, very end, with, with no warning, he's killed in 9-11. Yeah, that's... Isn't it's, that... It's the mm. sort of film that someone's someone was bound to do it, right? <laughs> but yeah. there you go. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's I guess it's a happy accident because the, the 25th hour, you know, was originally written as a story not containing any of that and it just so happened that um the, the way these things work out in timing is that toby Maguire, what was the one who originally wanted to make this film and he was the driving force behind it getting made which is quite strange to me because this is basically 2003 toby Maguire's he hadn't done spider-man before he was like producing this film or start getting this film kicked off and mm. i always thought toby Maguire was like this big star because of you know hitting it so big in 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 um in in Spider-Man but it it turns out he's um he he was already big enough and had enough you know at least a little bit of money behind him and support in the industry to say I like the story it's going to get made it couldn't it didn't work out for him playing the main character he wanted to play the Edward Norton character which I don't think would have been as good but he's the one who got it going then Spike Lee came in then all these other people came in so that's all years before 9-11, this starting out. So 9-11 is in the film because of just because of timing. But I thought Spike Lee said, like, like, like you said, it's, it's, it, it, the way it's depicted is really, really good because it's, it's much more natural, isn't it? He, just, he's, he, looks, he overlooks like ground zero from his apartment and he just says, it's not like something everybody talks about all the time, but he just reminds you that everybody in New York could look out of their window and see that and, and be reminded of that. And I thought that was really good. Yeah. I thought it was a good parallel to the story in that it's all about it's all about aftermath, really, isn't it? Because we get flashbacks to Edward Norton being caught and arrested. 
we get flashbacks to him meeting Rosario Dawson when she's quite young, which I think kind of was a bit um, uh, (laughs) not quite right. Um, There's a couple of things that make this film really sort of prescient, I thought, is that one is when they're talking about kind of uh someone is t- it's there's a subplot as well in that um philip seymour hoffman is a teacher and one of the one of the girls in his class clearly fancies him and they they make references to r kelly and i'm like oh wow so r kelly was the punchline to that joke in 2002 2003 right spike lee knew yeah um and the other one was when um uh philip seymour hoffman and it's barry pepper isn't it plays the the other character the the guy who's gone on to be a broker in the city yeah. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman reads the New York Times, which is saying that the air around Grand Zero is really bad. And uh, Barry, Pepper, Barry Pepper reads the New York Post, which says the air, the air around Grand Zero is absolutely fine. And they say somebody's lying, but they leave it at that. And I thought the fact that like fake, the, the, that whole debate of like fake news and people only consuming the side of the story that, that they, from, from that, 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 that they've landed on. That's, that I mean, it only gets mentioned in passing here, but I thought it, that's aged well because that's what fucking everybody's doing now, you know. Um, but in, in the main, I think the film is about it's about aftermath, isn't it? Because everything everything has already happened. It's not a case of Edward Norton's got a choice to make: he either does this or does that, and if he makes the wrong choice, he goes to jail. He's already made the wrong choice. He's already been caught. He's already going to jail. He's got twenty four hours. He's got to get on the bus and go up to prison. You know, he's got basically a day to set his affairs in order. So you're you're dealing with everything leading up to that, and it's it's over a day. So that means the pace of the film is relatively slow, and it means that the you know that some of the normal beats you'd get in this story are are that they're in the past. So what did you think of the pace of the film and the way it played out, given that it's placed at that particular point in the in in the the, the narrative, basically? Um, I didn't feel like it dragged at all. I thought it was quite a well-paced film. I didn't feel like it was... I didn't realise the film was two hours and 15 minutes. Mm. Um, you know, I was supposed to say 10 minutes of that's credits, but it didn't feel like a two-hour film to me. Yeah. and I think that there's, a, there's a couple of key scenes, aren't there? Um, one is the one where he's, he makes that speech to the mirror, and, and that's where Spike Lee sort of throws in his touches. Spike Lee's a really interesting director in this way, in that if you take something like this or Inside Man... You know other films that he's done where they're not, you know, they're not as much of a, of a like a completely personal, completely out of Spike Lee's kind of brain and heart, like do the right thing was, and you go well he he, he does the story the way it needs to be done, but then at the right moment at the right time in come the Spike Lee touches, and the Spike Lee touches really come in when he starts doing that speech about. He's obviously feeling very bitter because he's about to go to prison and he starts slagging off everything about New York that he hates, like the Italian-Americans, this and that, and all the different groups that, you know, that, that are in his neighbourhood, you know, the bankers, what a bunch of pricks they are. And, you know, he, he basically mentions every every group, every neighbourhood, every ethnic group in, uh, in, in New York. And Spike Lee kind of, as he's saying that, he kind of montages in Here's the here's the Italian Americans by the side of the road. Here's the here's the Korean shopkeepers. Here's the bankers and everything else. And he's 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 got it all in there. Um, that's where the Spike Lee touches come in. But the way that speech that speech turns around at the end to no mate, it's not all them, is it? It's you. You're the one who did this. You're the one who's fucked up. You're the one who's going to jail. Do you know what I mean? So that's yeah. a really pivotal scene in the film. And then there's another really pivotal scene at the end and. We can describe this because it's not a spoiler because it's, um, I think that the film, 
The film, I think, implies very strongly what happens next, but it doesn't tell you or show you. you I think you draw your own conclusion a little bit. But at the end, when you know he's, he's sitting with his dad, Brian Cox, underused in films as always, but very good whenever he's there, um, and he says, well, here's what you could do. You could, you know, I turn left at the next sign instead of right. Um, I drop you somewhere and you just go to another part of the, you know, another part of the world, uh, you know, to the other end of America. Keep quiet. Keep your head down. You can't ever come back. And he visualizes what his, what his life could be if he did that. And it wouldn't be going to prison. It'd be going off and living a, an entirely different new life. And then it comes back to him sitting in the car. And then it just it just fades. And it's a funny film, I think, in that you can you can describe the final scene without it being a spoiler, because really the spoiler would be if 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 it told you or if you if if we were to discuss, you know, whether he goes to prison, whether he goes goes on the run, what happens when he goes to prison, because there is no spoiler. But it's really interesting that right at the end you've got that bit where he's basically imagining two scenarios. The one where he says, Okay, goes to prison and sucks it up for however many years he's gonna be down or tries to go in the run and see if that works. What did you think of that f- sort of sort of final final five minutes where he kind of where, he, where he's playing that out in his head? Yeah, I thought it was really good. I thought it was really effective. The kind of just the almost desperate nature. Yeah, the, it felt very frantic. You know, do I do this? Do I do that? Um, no, I really enjoyed that. But yeah, I mean the 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 it, it sort of revolves around the four characters and this uh, this Barry Pepper is kind of the brash banker who does I think a nice job Edward Norton I think I think he does a, a really fine job I think Edward Norton's what one of the best actors around certainly at that era he was who just he basically shows you he's this guy he's kind of very matter of fact about the bad shit that's going to happen to him in prison if he's not careful all the things that he's going to you know have to put up with um you know the way he loves that dog and you know the, the different things he's going to you know he, I think he portrays all the emotions in a way the, the the casting of philip seymour hoffman in that particular role it's it's almost too too good isn't it it's like of course he plays the kind of sweaty nervous teacher who's like absolutely beside himself because a a teenage girl in his class fancies him do you know what i mean yeah no totally that was i think i think you could say it was perfect casting but i think philip seymour hoffman in any role is pretty much going to be perfect casting yeah but yeah. he's so, he's so good at those Especially parts for that, yeah. yeah yeah he's i mean in boogie nights he sort of plays the kind of he kind of shows you that kind of slightly more kind of you know the less the unglamorous kind of uh off-putting side of the, the of the that that sort of porn world and you know i, I remember when uh have you seen magnolia no. So there's a bit in Magnolia where he's looking after an old man. He's uh, Jason Robards. He's looking after an old man. He's on the brink of death. He's a carer. And for reasons of plot, which I won't explain, he's 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 been asked to try and help. Like the, 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 the old man's asking for his help. And then in the next scene, he's calling up uh, sort of a local delivery place, that, a shop that will deliver things for him. And he asks for some foods and this and that. And, and the three porno mags. And I think, oh my God, do you know what I mean? It's oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's going to sit there and he's going to wank in the other room while the other man dies on life support. Is that what he does? Is that what a carer does overnight? And what happens next is completely different to that, completely throws you off. But for a couple of minutes, you think, oh, you dirty, smeggy little bastard. Because <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman is just perfect for that. Um, he can play around with that so much. And I thought Rosario Dawson was very good as well. I mean, it is a little bit about the guys more than her in, in the story, I think. Um, but I think it's uh, it 
I mean, essentially, that, that last night of freedom sort of plays out in a number of different ways when they go to the club, when there's a confrontation about who kind of betrayed him. You know, he has to kind of face his friends and kind of kind of face up to what's happened and the the, the, the different things that they do without spoiling the plot. I thought, like you say, a, a, some people might have said two hours and 15 minutes is a hell of a long running time for like, you know, that storyline. But I think he just paces it quite nicely, doesn't he? Yeah, I think it, with the content of the the plot, I think you want to kind of be, you want to know what's more happening next to engage with it yeah so that that helps with reducing i think i call it like film fatigue where yeah. you're watching anything you know, is it getting closer to the end now? i think yeah. that's that was that was a good example of that yeah I, th- I think it manages to match the tone of the main character's sort of moment in his life really well and so th- these are the last 24 hours before everything changes forever you know and the way it kind of focuses on on each moment i kind of worked really well so how typical is this of the other Spike Lee films you've seen? Um, He's a very, very director, but I mean, there's a, there's a Spike Lee... Kind of, there's an image in your head of what a Spike Lee movie is, right? How close was this to that? It felt... Mm, it's it's hard to say. It felt a little bit different to um, The Five Bloods and uh, Summer of Sam. Yeah. It felt different to those two. And black um, and black Klansman as well, obviously. And black black Klansman's a totally different film of its own. That's a class above. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's hard to pin down the kind of style that he has. He's, he can be sometimes a bit excessive of what he does, but I wouldn't say any of those four films are the same. They have no. similarities, but yeah, no, I think they're quite yeah. different. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what the way you describe this for Spike Lee is similar when you talk about Scorsese is that the films can be very varied, but he's a New York filmmaker and this is one of his New York films, I would have said. Okay, well, listen, if you got have you got anything else to add or a final thought on on this mate or have no, we I have we done it? We've, we've done that justice we've nearly gone on for the length of the film itself about that one, <laughs> okay well look that's uh that's a really strong one i think that's a really i'm really glad we got around to seeing that that's a strong classic for us to have caught up with uh we'll be back with another one next month now on to the next feature Now for the Hidden Gem feature about a film that is not as well known as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month's feature is a film that was made when its director and star were both on a run of great form but somehow didn't find an audience. The Hidden Gem for episode 36 is Ridley Scott's Matchstick Men. So James, aware of this before it came out? I think you'd spoken about it before but no I hadn't seen it. Yeah, it, it's it's quite an interesting time. Ridley Scott is making this film when he's coming off the back of Gladiator and Black Hawk Down. Um, and yeah. <laughs> if you if you sort of target overall, this is one of the best runs of Ridley Scott's career. He has these huge up and down moments. You know, he had the Duelists, Alien, and Blade Runner. And the shame is that Blade Runner was his critical pinnacle. Well, you know, his, his sort of creative pinnacle, but wasn't that successful at the time. And then he. Uh, he came back and had a bit of, you know, started kicking ass again because, you know, he had the return of Blade Runner, the director's cart. He got his first Oscar nomination in the early 90s for Thelma and Louise, but then he kind of dipped again. But then he absolutely smashed it with Gladiator in 2000. He was Black Hawk Down in 2001. He follows up with this, uh, with, with uh, Nick Cage and Matchman 2003. 
He does Kingdom of Heaven, which I think looking back on that period is now considered one of his best films in the director's cut. He he also did a very decent thriller, I thought, called Body of Lies. And the only and he did American Gangster in 2007. And the only real sort of duff film in this period is uh, is A Good Year, which we'll gloss over. And on the whole, his hit rate has probably never been better than during this period. And Nick Cage was at his height as well, because he's, he's sort of transitioned into the kind of action-leading man where he's done The Rock and Con Air. Uh, he was doing some really good stuff back then. He was mixing it up between kind of successful genre stuff and something like Adaptation, where he's got Oscar nominations, wins a ton of awards. I think it's his best performance. And so two people really at their height really come together at, at, a, at their you know at, at a real peak to make this film. Um, it didn't quite work at the box office, um, which is why it's a hidden gem. Um, but it got very, despite getting good reviews. Um, Apart from, you know, Ridley's got Nick Cage, it's got a good cast, it's got Sam Rockwell just on, on coming up, Bruce McGill, which is, a, he's one of those people who go, oh, him. Um, and Alison Lohman plays sort of the young girl in the story, and I've only ever seen her in this, uh, but, but I thought she was good. Um, the the genre of this film, it is very much, it's the con man genre. I mean, what's your relationship to these, like, con man films, mate? I'm not going to lie, I don't really give a shit about them. <laughs> um, I quite enjoyed Catch Me If You Can, but that's just because it's Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks and Spielberg are on, you know, top form. But I don't actually give a shit about them. I don't understand the appeal about them. Um, it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's 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 a, it's a subgenre. It's an offshoot of the um, uh, of the heist movie. In that there is a. Uh, because and Catch Me If You Can doesn't quite fit this genre because basically Catch Me If You Can is a biographical drama about a con man. It tells you the stuff that happened with his dad when he was a kid, and then his kind of you know adventures around the world and and, and Tom Hanks trying to catch him. The actual con artist genre tends to it works like a like a heist film in that you've got this central main job that they're about to pull. And it's all the preparation. It's the people they pull together. It's the 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 the, the heist or the the con job itself, and then the aftermath. And it all revolves around that. And because you have got a bunch of con artists all working together, usually there's the suspicion that well, they're they're con men, aren't they? Someone you know, they're con men, con women, con artists. They they're going to rip each other off. And the thing with a heist movie is, is that often you can like we like I watched Bandit earlier on, and there's almost an element of. If he doesn't actually hurt anyone, um, it's only the fucking banks. Fuck them. Do you know what I mean? They've got insurance. Who cares if they lose money? Do you know what I mean? But these these con men are taking money off people, you know, and it's not, um, you know, it's very hard to sympathise with the crime that they're committing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've I've just I've just never given a shit about it. You know what I mean? I just oh, someone's wearing a disguise. Like, what was that fucking terrible film where everyone said Will Smith was cheating on his wife with oh, Margot Robbie? Oh, Focus. Yeah, I wish he had. I, just a wee side point. I wish he had cheated on Jada Pinkett Smith with Margot Robbie. Anyway, um, I've never understood, like, the kind of, ooh, a con movie. Like, I've, ne- I've never really cared about it. Um, the, I mean, like all of these things, the, uh, the way in which it's portrayed on film is always sort of more glamorous and, and in some ways more defensible than the, the real thing. Like most bank robbers or most heists are not like Ocean's Eleven. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the, the con artist, you're only going to watch a con artist film if, you know, the, the, the main people involved or the stuff that's going on is, you know, if someone's conning an old granny out of the last, you know, her last tenor then that's pretty grim 
this is always going to be sort of something a little bit more elevated. And the thing I like about the con artist film and the kind of con, con artist we're talking about here is like The Sting, Nine Queens, which is an amazing film, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Grifters. We talked about Paper Moon. House of Games is a classic. And Trading Places, the Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd film. That might be a bit before your time, but that's got a whole con man element to it as well. And really what it's about, it's about these people pitted against each other. And it's about, it's kind of almost watching two snakes in a pit wondering who's going to kind of get the other one. Uh, and and usually the way that it works is that there's a whole element of the, the, the big con job, who's double crossing who, is there a double cross, what's going on, what, you know... What you know? What, what what's going to happen when it all when it all plays out? And I I like that sort of thing. I think what's interesting about this one, and you know, it, I'll see what what you thought of that is that Nick Cage is obviously he's struggling with what he's doing. He is a con man who pulls all of these scams that he's ripping people off, and there's quite a lot of these people he's ripping off. You think, oh, that that's not on, but he is um, he's riven with essentially OCD and. Uh, you know, ticks and anxiety and a whole load of mental health issues which have got to stem from a guilty conscience. He is absolutely struggling with all of this because deep down he knows that what he's doing is is awful. And I haven't seen that really in, in the same way in a con artist film before. I mean, in a, in, in, a, in a film like Nine Queens, you've got a con man who's really sort of, you know, sort of unsympathetic but compelling and then you've got him doing this this scam with his other con artists, and you're never sure who's doing what. Um, but in this, you're following a central character who's clearly having a problem with what he's doing. And I thought that was interesting. I don't know what you thought of it, mate. Yeah, it was different to see someone like a criminal feel bad about what they're doing. I think the best way to sell this film, though, is just say that Nick Cage plays a con man with Tourette's. Yeah, he's got Tourette's, he's got OCD, he's got anxiety, he can't stand, you know, everyone's got to take their shoes off as soon as they walk into his into his, uh, into his his house. When he when he go, gets under stress or forgets to take his meds or run out of meds, he has to kind of clean his house from top to bottom and then Sam Rockwell walks in and can barely kind of, his eyes are watering because everything smells so much of disinfectant. And uh, that's, uh, I, I mean, I personally think Nick Cage gives an absolutely excellent performance here because, you know, obviously we love Nick Cage I think I love all types of Nick Cage, but I think this is very much Nick Cage in one of those periods where he's going, well, it's not even a period. Sometimes he goes completely off the wall. He's bouncing off the walls and you can, you know, you can enjoy it like National Treasure or uh, the, the Deadfall or the Vampire's Kiss thing. This one, he's like, he's really kind of contained himself. There's a lot for him to do with that character. He can, he can go off the wall with the character, but he's really kind of contained it within what's right for this character in the story, isn't he? Yeah, no, it was it wasn't your traditional I'm a vampire. Yeah, Nick Cage's performance, but he still had the because of the the nature of the character, he still had of his his moments where he could go and do his weird Nicolas Cage thing. So I think it was a happy balance for him. Yeah, yeah, he timed is he, uh, when he when he did sort of get a bit big with his performance. It was well timed, wasn't it? Um, I enjoyed Sam Rockwell. He plays the younger con man who has no conscience about what he's doing, and I thought he did it in a. I guess it was the perfect role for Sam Rockwell to be playing back then because it was one of the roles, I think, that established Sam Rockwell. He, it's probably a bit of a stereotypical Sam Rockwell performance looking back now. Do you know what I mean? He, he tries not to do too many of these now, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and Al- Alison Lohman playing the, uh, the, the, the the girl he's brought, you know, who comes into the story, who uh, it, 
when we're introduced at the start, he's uh, Nick, Nick Cage believes she's his daughter, yeah? Yeah. Um, and he connects with her and he starts to think that he has this whole thing with him, doesn't he? Is that maybe connecting with his daughter can make him a better person. But in the process of connecting with his daughter, she kind of, he, he gets her involved in his kind of con, his con operation. So he's kind of having this big conflict with himself about whether he's doing the right, the right thing with this, uh, um, you know, you know, showing his daughter these, th- th- this side of himself, you know? Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of layers because when you say con film, you think, oh, how are they going to steal the money this time? Or how are they going to do this? Or what's the trick? What's the bit? Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, it was a lot more about the the people behind it. Yeah, and and I think that's probably why it works because the thing with the thing with these con, I mean, look, I, I like them, and if you don't like that sort of thing, you can forget it. Nine Queens is an absolute fucking Swiss watch of a film. It's perfect. It is genius at, at every level. It's got characters you can sympathise with pitted against the characters you hate, and that's why it works. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels playing the whole thing for laughs. Michael Caine versus Steve Martin. They're just, you know, the whole thing is comical, and the fact that they're kind of... It's two con men going after each other. That's So it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? If something bad happens to either of them, you can kind of just enjoy it, and it's only meant to be funny. This, because it gives you that kind of characterization to work with, I think you sort of... And, I mean, it establishes early on, doesn't it, that a lot of the cons they do are on ordinary people and they're really sort of fucking unacceptable. But the big con that they're trying to pull off is on a, a greedy prick, isn't he? He's a fucking arsehole who's trying to, you know, launder money and dodge tax. So you're kind of going along going, I oh, don't actually mind if this guy gets ripped off, right? Yeah. Um, now, the thing with con artist films, I don't want to say too much about the plot, but one of the conventions of con artist films, there's always a big con, opera- con operation that plays out like a heist. There's always another con of some kind going on besides that. Somebody's conning something. The person that you're trying to con, your mark, could be up to something. Um, you know, the the something will happen, the, 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 the whole con will fall apart and you'll have to do something about that. But there's usually some, there are usually twists and turns in the story. Now, I suppose you can guess the outcome. I don't know if you guessed where the story was going before we got to the end, mate. Um, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't, but I'm, I I tend not to guess the outcomes of stories like this, and it's possible because maybe I'm just not very good at guessing or, or seeing it, or maybe it's just because I just go along for the ride. I I just follow the story. I think this has got some really good misdirection, and I mean, it's interesting. The um. One of the great con artist films, House of Games, one of the main actors in it is Ricky Jay. And you recognise Ricky Jay. He's the kind of sort of portly guy with the beard who's in um, The Prestige. And he was a he was a magician, an illusionist. And he taught um, uh, Hugh Jackman and uh, Christian Bale how to do all of their illusions in The Prestige. And he's in House of Games because basically there's a lot of similarity between pulling off a magical illusion like David Copperfield and pulling off a con. So you're always trying to misdirect the audience, do you know what I mean? And misdirect the people in the story. And I just enjoyed taking being taken along for the ride. And obviously I was re- re-watching it for this episode and I knew exactly how it was going to end up and I enjoyed it just as much. I think that's probably my best recommendation of this film is that even if you know how it's going to end, you still enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what did you think of the music choices in this film? Because this is one where Ridley Scott sort of throws in a few needle drops, doesn't he? Yeah, I also didn't expect it to be uh, scored by Hans Zimmer. Um, Ridley Scott used to do loads of Hans Zimmer. He he um 
Tony Scott and, and Ridley Scott got on the uh, the Hans Zimmer train in the late 80s and, and, and mostly never got off. No, it's just, I, I, I just didn't expect a kind of a Hans Zimmer uh, score to be attached to this film. Hmm. But yeah, it was... Uh, I quite like the music in it. I don't know about you. Yeah, I, apparently I was reading up on this. It's just meant to be the kind of music that Roy would listen to, but I thought it was it was interesting because it sort of sets an interesting mood for the film in the same way that Jessica Chastain's disco music sets a rather incongruous mood in The Martian. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's just in it's quite it's quite playful in tone in that way, isn't it? It's like the con is the con, and it's a crime film, and there's an element of danger and jeopardy to the con. There's the character story around the family, and there's all of that stuff around Nick Cage's mental health. But over the top of it, Ridley Scott just kind of, it's kind of, it's almost like a like a light, um, light a light tone he, he, he applies across the film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's a dark comedy, but it's not like, you know, it's not dramatic. Yeah, you know I mean, spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, did you enjoy it overall? Yeah, I thought it was good. For someone who doesn't particularly give a shit about con films, I probably liked it more because it wasn't as much about the con. It's got a bit of a twist on it, hasn't it? Yeah. Okay, well, look, thank you, everyone. We, we we would highly recommend this film. This is another kind of hidden gem which we would call out for everybody. Um, the, the whole idea of it is is to just, re- you know, get, get you a recommendation where you go, God, I've not heard of that. I might give that a watch rather than just the next thing the algorithm kind of pushes on you. Um, so... Often that means that, you know, James introduces something to me that I'm not keen on or vice versa. We're not always unanimous, but this time both enjoyed it, both recommending it to you. Give it a watch. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we explore how the director of Elizabeth attempted to go back to his Indian roots and make an ambitious, dystopian sci-fi film. The one that got away for episode 36 is Shekhar Kapoor's Pani. So, James, uh, this is quite an obscure one, so I'd be surprised if you knew a lot about this before um, we, we we lined it up uh, for for this episode of the podcast. Not a scuba to do. But, I mean, Shakur Kapoor, even if you're not familiar with the name, you'll probably be familiar with his most famous film, which is Elizabeth, right? Uh, yeah. Didn't like it, but yeah. Oh, you didn't like Elizabeth? Nah. Oh, that's a shame. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, but Kate Blanchett is one of, like, you know the most beautiful leading women in Hollywood and she's playing Elizabeth who had fucking smallpox. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the historicity of uh, Elizabeth is it does not stack up. What's interesting about Elizabeth is that it, it creates a through line of, uh, of, of Elizabeth's uh, reign similar to, it almost plays out like a gangster film, like something like The Godfather where it's kill or be killed and if you don't, uh, if you don't, um, contend with the people who are plotting to kill you, and probably have to plot to kill a few of them. Then you're you're going to struggle, and it's an interesting kind of way of portraying like the the battles between the crown heads of Europe, you know, Spain and Britain, in in, in a compelling way. I I find it very memorable to look at. There's a great scene where Daniel Craig, who plays an assassin in the film, strides through the cathedral, intent on on murdering Elizabeth. Um, very stylish director. He got his start or his his international attention with a film called Bandit Queen, 
which told the true story of uh, uh, an Indian, just ordinary woman from a village who was gang raped and assaulted and abused by a neighboring village or the kind of the local kind of uh, basically gangsters who could do anything they want. And she decided to take revenge and she, she basically assembled her own private army and uh, took brutal revenge on everyone and, and, and on the system that protected her rapists. Um, which is a true story, a woman who went on to actually then kind of run or attempt to run for political office in India. A very controversial film in India um, because it lifted the lid on things that, uh, you know, they, they weren't quite keen on kind of confronting the fact that there's this, you know, you know, we we all like to we all like to think of like the glamorous Bollywood storylines and 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 how how nice all that is, but people don't like to kind of. I don't think there's a lot of people in India who, who want to be confronted with some of the sort of unpleasant truths that Shekhar Kapoor kind of presented them in, in Bandit Queen. But huge international success. Respected director at home. He's not a Bollywood style director. You don't get dance sequences. You don't get all of that in his films. He's he's much more gritty than that. So this is like early 2000s so he's still kind of got some of the international profile that elizabeth got him i mean that film had you know oscar nominations success and awards around the world and it uh early 2000s he's he's got this idea for a film now pani means water in uh, in hindi and he imagined this film or, or planned this film as a futuristic film set about 60 years in the future a kind of Indian version of Blade Runner. He was going to portray the kind of cyberpunk future of a decaying futuristic Indian city. So imagine somewhere like Mumbai given the Blade Runner treatment. Right. Um, and in that future, because of climate change and a climate catastrophe, the water supply is fucked. Water is an incredibly scarce resource hoarded by the wealthy and used as a means of social control by the wealthy to control the poor who are desperately, desperately kind of fighting to kind of get any element of um, uh, of water or, or, or resources to, to look after themselves. Um, when he did some research, he basically said he was using a futuristic setting to talk about things that are practically happening now. He was going around some of the poorest areas of like Indian cities and showing these kind of women with, with a baby on their hip, desperately trying to kind of get a little bit of clean water from the pump. So it's it's one of those futuristic stories which isn't really that far far away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and he was talking about writing it with Andrew Nichol. Now, what's your, do you aware of Andrew Nichol? It's not the cunt that does films like Love Actually and shit like that. Not mm-hmm. Love Actually, but you know the ones I mean. Like love stories, not really. He's the one who uh, wrote. Who am the I thinking tr- of that? I'm trying to think of who that would be. Um, but he, Tom he, Nichols. Yeah, maybe he's he. Andrew Nichol did the Truman Show. Huh. He he wrote it. Peter Weir directed. He wrote and directed directed. I think Gattaca, which is a, a, quite a, an interesting sci-fi film. Things like that. Um, now he did another film, which I think is a fantastic. Uh, idea, fantastic premise that didn't entirely work as a film called In Time. Did you see that? Justin Timberlake, uh, yes, Amanda Seyfried. Yes, it could have been an amazing film, but it was just... Ter- terrific premise. It's, it's not bad when you watch it, but it could be a bit more. Mm-hmm. It's uh, The the idea is is that time... that They've basically arrived at a point where no, no one ages, but when you get to the age of 25, you're allocated a finite amount of time and you have to work for more time. So time has replaced money as a concept and the, the uh it means the rich people are practically immortal 
and poor people are literally, you know, living week to week. Um, a fascinating idea, not not as well pulled off as it should be. It's one of those ones that we need to kind of look at as like when we do our, you know, films that deserve a remake, that's something that should be on our list. Now, the reason that's interesting is Andrew Nichol had that idea, you know, in mind, surely when he did In Time, which he did years later, the idea that th- this stranglehold that the rich have over the poor and a, a, a resource meaning that much of a life and death idea. So this was the idea that Yarama would have and the, the central idea of the story was going to be uh, someone from the poor, the wrong side of the tracks, desperately kind of get a hold of more money, sorry, more water, um, taking on or, or doing battle with uh, the people living at the, you know, the top of the, the top of the ivory towers, almost literally ivory towers at the top of the cities. You've got all the water. And it was going to be a hugely sort of ambitious, but also kind of compelling kind of story. Now, if someone plays that storyline outright, I mean, would you be in line to watch that? Sounds a bit like Waterworld. No, I'm joking. It. Um, <laughs> it's the opposite of Waterworld. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it sounds a very much like in time. So it seems like Jeff Nichols has a theme here. Also, I figured out who it was. It wasn't Jeff Nichols, it was Nicholas Sparks. Ah, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Who yeah. has literally written every horrible romantic film. Yeah, yeah, It's always there's always a guy sanding a boat on a beach with his shirt off. And over you can always like you can always hear the same music playing in your mind and the same kind of kind of color scheme on on the shot and you go yeah just uh, insert a different kind of like female lead and it's the same yeah, guy. But every notice time. that man is never you know John Goodman. No, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I think the the premise of that sounds quite interesting. It seems like Jeff Nichol has a kind of theme of. Things- uh, uh, sorry, mate, Andrew Nichol. Andrew Nichol, sorry, two of my things. Jeff Nichol come from Andrew um, Nichol. Jeff Nichol, Andrew I, Jeff Nichol did that film Mud and um, uh, Midnight Special. I think we need to get people to have different names. <laughs> um, yeah. So Andrew Nichol seems like he has a theme here where things we need are currency. Yeah. Um, that seems to be his kind of style. Yeah, and I think the thing that made it interesting for me is it's it's definitely the setting because it's a that kind of futuristic idea of a dystopia, we've seen that before, but a futuristic city in India, that's got my attention. It's a different look. It's one of those ones where, you know, that's that site, there's, when, don't you have a, a film setting, a cyberpunk futuristic world? Yeah. But actually it's quite recognizable from now. Like, although LA in, in Blade Runner is hugely futuristic, it kind of reminds you of, the, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it feels like a, a city that you could imagine it's not that far off the the state of things today mm. um so you know somewhere like mumbai with cutting edge new skyscrapers dominating the the skyline and the worst slums imaginable are literally on their doorstep indian cyberpunk yes please um i imagine the if you've seen some of the the, the there's some really great films like when we talked about mira Nair for shantaram she's a film called salam bombay which shows you the different kind of uh, struggles of like the street kids in in bombay as it was known then mumbai as it's known now and imagining you've got literally physical levels. You know, you've got the rich people on the top floor in the penthouses of these tall buildings, and you've got the poor people at the bottom. You've got all the different levels of society and the power dynamics and the struggles from top to bottom. That There's a lot of potential in this story. The idea of water running out, you know, there's so many opportunities for human, you know, behavior to kind of be portrayed, opportunities for conflict and, you know, the climate catastrophe. Um, it's got a nice balance of being futuristic and dy- dystopian, but talking about things which are real concerns today. You know, the way Interstellar was talking about you know, environmental problems and, the, and crops failing. And you're sitting there going, yeah, I could see this happening. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
what what would your thoughts be about this being like an Indian set film? I mean, are you worried about it being a bit too Bollywood or? No, because the director doesn't really have that history, does he? Of no. The let's everyone stand and do a choreographed kind of routine. I really do like the idea of um, India portrayed in that kind of cyberpunk, cyberpunk futuristic setting because well, I don't think we've ever seen a film depicting what India will be like in the future because I think we have that image of India that everyone wears that really fancy traditional dress. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I can never. What's the, do you know the name of it? Is it a sari? Uh, the yeah, the women's sari, and yeah, I, f- I forget what the. So you know what I mean, yeah. but that's the kind of image we. I, I know that's probably not the case. They all wear t-shirts and shorts because it's fucking roasting over there. Yeah, but that image is in a kind of. I think I think that's the, that the, kind of traditional old dress. So I think it's the image a lot of in a lot of Indian films push that image themselves, don't they? Yeah, yeah, de- definitely, and. So the the reason this film get made is it had the usual struggles. First of all, it's going to cost a lot of money. Now, Shekhar Kapoor was trying to get across that by making it an international film. Andrew Nichol was quite big at the time. He was going to try and mix it up between an Indian cast and a British cast. It would be a mixture of British and Indian, so it could be a so British English and Indian language. So the whole idea was that it could be like an international film. Um, but he's kind of in a tough situation in that you've got to try and get funding either from the West, who would... You know, you can just imagine him having meetings with like Hollywood executives going, can't we set this in, you know, Detroit or, or, or LA? Could we do that? And it's like, no, the whole point is it's got to be set in fucking India, mate. Do you know what I mean? Um, while at the same time going to India and saying, hi, can I have all your money for a film which is going to show this country and the way you treat the poor in a bad light? And so he, he was having that kind of struggle. And I, I, I think he was having problems just getting funding for, for that exact reason. Um you know, he did the Elizabeth sequel in 2007, which was a big hit. Slumdog Millionaire came out in 2008, which is an even bigger hit. So, you know, he started to talk again about it in like 2010 through to 2013, where there might be another window of opportunity. But I think if you've still got the same struggle, you know, as much as Slumdog Millionaire is like hard hitting about kind of the, the way these poor kids are treated, that film's popular because it's got that kind of, you know, Danny Boyle does that kind of, uh, gritty but happy kind of style do you know what I mean and it's like and he wins the quiz and it's a miracle not you know guys the future is shit do you know what I mean so he was just struggling and it's even harder now um, the uh, the main actor that was going to be in his film is a guy called Sushant uh, Singh um, and he passed away he tragically took his own life due to some unrelated personal mental health issues he was you know the rising star Shekhar Kapoor had some real hope this film could actually um, you know, get some traction with it, an actor that big attached to it. Um, the political climate in India is tough for a film like this. The the the, the president Modi is a a nationalist. He's basically a fascist. There's so much pressure on the Indian film industry, not just to be to toe the line in terms of the types of films they do, but to do a hook life. You know, tell that the the story of Hindu nationalism. You know, Shahrukh Khan is almost persona non, non grata in uh, in Bollywood cinema, which is unthinkable ten years ago. But because he's a Muslim, he's getting a hard time off the government. So it feels it feels like the the odds are stacked against this film. But here's here's the twist of the tale. Here is that um, if you go on ID, IMDb, this film is listed as in production. Now that doesn't really fucking mean that much, but 
He is trying to do it. He is trying to get this film done. You will see Shekhar Kapoor's name pop up directing TV and all sorts of other things. And I think he's trying to build up the money and the credibility with industry to, to relaunch this project. He just did a rom-com called What's Love Got to Do With It for one of the big streamers, which had some money behind it. Similar thing, you know, with Ben Wheatley doing kind of commercial projects so that he can get some of his more like, you know, personal projects off the ground. He's trying to do this. So <clears throat> it may go ahead now. It's, much, it's more in vogue now than perhaps it's ever been to kind of slate the rich in film. If you look at that kind of triangle of sadness and all these films about what, you know, what scumbags, you know, uh, billionaires are, you know, the popularity of the TV show Succession, there's a chance this film's going to get made. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are about how they would, how you would do an international film of this style to get the money, mate. What would be your thoughts on how they could make this happen? Um, well, I suppose there's not many big... Hollywood actors of kind of Hindu or Indian descent, so I think it's it's hard to kind of have that kind of connection. You know, you know that way when they they try and do films in China and they get you know Matt Damon to star yeah, in yeah. the Great Wall, or they get um, Chris Evans to start in, to star in Snowpiercer to kind of have yeah. a Korean connection. So it's hard depending on way, the way they do it. I don't think I'd want that either. I don't think you'd want to have a load of Hollywood actors in this film. I think you just go and do it with the cast you want to do it and then it'll get the traction it and recognition it deserves if it's yeah. If it's good enough the same way the R R R got the yeah, recognition yeah. it deserved yeah, yeah. because people enjoyed it. So I think you just I think you just make it the way you want to make it and if if it's good people will watch yeah. it. Yeah, I mean there's talk of it getting a name change, like something like Flow or the Story of Water. I think Pani obviously means something to Indian audiences, but they probably need to kind of, you know, uh uh, yeah, and, and 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 Kapoor himself is 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 toying with that idea. Like you say, it's about getting a, a star attached who will drive the film internationally, but not kind of turn it into a you know a a, a, a film that just happens to be set in India, full of like non-Indian actors. I mean, the name that springs to mind would be Priyanka Chopra. I mean, because she is big in both worlds now. Yeah, she's a, she's even, a big. Sorry, no, go ahead, mate. Um, Dev Patel would be another good option as well. Yes, he's yes, already, yes, yes. He's already done. Sort of, he's not a totally different film, but I suppose that film depicting sorry Obi has just come up to the microphone just to say hello. <laughs> Hi, Obi. Right. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think Dev Patel is another another good one. I don't see why he shouldn't you know come back. I think he's done a he's done a few things. He's another one who's done like you know quite varied stuff. I love the Green Knight that he did, and I would happily see him in something like this. So Dev Patel, Priyanka Chopra. Um, that'd do for me. Um, so listen, this is one where you say, fingers crossed, this might happen. And I think this would be generally interesting. You know, as sci-fi fans, as as fans of films that kind of tell, you know, you know, give a warning about the future in a stylish and gritty way, uh, this is right up my street. So I'd like to see this happen. So fingers crossed he manages to do it. We close the features episode of the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. Later on, we'll also discuss a remake restoration. Once we've finished asking if a remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needs to be done right this time. 
This month we look at a film that perhaps launched the 21st century revival, pun intended, of the zombie genre, but with a very different approach to the original material. The remake Hate Watch for episode 36 is the Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead. So James, zombies, what's your relationship to the whole zombie genre, apart from the fact that we're writing a, a zombie script together? Where, where, where did zombies come in for you? Probably Zombieland. Yeah. I think that was kind of the right, the right age. I was, when, how old was I when I came, when I probably, not when it came out, when I watched, probably about 13. Yeah, that sounds I, right. I know it's a 15, but you know what I mean? That's just the way it goes. Yeah. And I think I was probably the right age to kind of get into those films. However, I, I think the reason we're writing that, that script is because zombie films are a bit fucking shit. They've been shit for a while. And I know George Romero is considered the kind of pioneer of zombie films, but those films were ages ago. And you're telling me that since then, the only film that we have to really celebrate the zombie genre, in my opinion, is Zombieland 1. Zombieland 2 was okay. Um, But yeah, I do do feel that they need to... Yeah, I mean, it's like... um... It's obviously been, you know, better served on TV, at least for like the first four or five seasons of The Walking Dead. Um, but it is interesting, is it? There, there was a, there was a revival of of, of the genre uh, with with this one. This is like two thousand and three, early two thousand and four. It, it, it comes out, I think, just just at the beginning of two thousand and four, which is why it fits into that kind of twelve month period in which I was thirty. Um, it is. It's a remake of George Romero's original, which came out in 1978. And there was a similar thing when when George Romero did his films, because he did Night of the Living Dead in 1968, and that was a huge hit. Um, someone fucked up on um, uh, on that. Uh, it, it, it lost its copyright rating, so there were lots of uncredited remakes of it. There was this kind of cycle of... Living Dead films, Dawn of the Dead kind of cemented the idea of the zombie that we have now, the fact that you know, the corpse, the decaying face and all that sort of thing, the, the the groaning and everything else. Dawn of the Dead is probably where all the tropes of zombie films came out and there were endless remakes, uh, zombie flesh eaters, several Italian kind of, you know, rip-offs of the same storyline. Uh, you know, and then in the 80s you had Night of the Comet Returning the Living Dead, but it very quickly degenerated into shit, like really low-level B-movie versions. And, and George Romero films were trying to be more than that. But none of the none none of his imitators were, and it it kind of died out, and then this brought it back, and you know in in short order, although this slightly different time frame, it it, it was not long after Twenty Eight Days Later, which isn't really a zombie film, but then you get Shaun of the Dead, which kind of plays the whole thing for laughs. You've got like Zombieland, which it's as plays funny, the whole thing, yeah, <laughs> it's as it's funny, it's as funny as as Shaun of the Dead, I think Zombieland, but the the zombie stuff is much more serious. I think, do you know what I mean? Um, um, although people do yeah. get people do get generally torn apart and disemboweled in Shaun of the Dead, but it does feel it it does feel a bit more like a proper end of the world story zombie land, doesn't it? Um, and and since then zombies are everywhere, but but there's maybe not as many kind of strong. You know, they did also remade Day of the Dead, which is my favourite of the original Romero trilogy, and that that was really shit. But this film this film probably sparked a lot of it off and. The big difference is is the zombies are really fast. And what what did you think of that? The change from slow to fast zombies. Um, things I've I like fast zombies, but I do think that if fast zombies were a thing, the world would be completely overrun 
there wouldn't be any survivors. So that's the first problem I have with slow zombies, uh, fast zombies, is that they're too quick. Yeah. They fully sprint and would completely annihilate the population. The, the zombies in this film are like Olympic athletes, aren't they? Yeah, they it's can ridiculous. fucking that you could actually they could actually do the 110 meters hurdles and like vault over a wall and get you and then beat you in a fight. It's like Jesus, these guys are in better shape than when they were fucking alive, you know? And I've never liked that. I always like the idea of slower zombies who you're overrun and it's like that it's slow, like, yeah, impending, it's in, in, what inexorable. You, like you can't get away from them exactly. because you, yeah. you can you can't do anything about it, and you're thinking shit. It's and it's the, almost the waiting for them to surround you and get yeah. you. Um, I mean, have you have you seen the original Dawn of the Dead, 1978, in the shopping centre? Uh, yes, I think it's the the only George Romero one I've seen. Now, did you like um, it or? Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit 1978. It's, isn't it? it's dated. I, I think Day of the Dead is much better now. I t- but I tell you what. Heretical thing to say, the zombies in Dawn of the Dead are a bit shit. The original, or yeah, the original nineteen seventy eight. They are too yeah. slow. They're they're slow. They're kind of you know half the time they're kind of easy to kind of knock out, get out of the way. That actually don't present enough of a threat. Personally, I think, I think the best zombies, and we've already mentioned it, but I think the best zombies are in Zombieland because while they're not running zombies, they're not kind of shambling zombies either you do actually have to kind of at least break into a run to get away from them yeah i think zombieland's got about the right pace of zombie when you think about it i still think zombieland is a little too quick i think somewhere between zombieland and the walking dead yeah that that would do for me yeah because i mean in the walking dead if if someone's got an injured leg and they can't kind of keep up the pace they're in a bit of trouble aren't they yeah and i think the 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 best thing about The Walking Dead is that more often than not, a character, whether it's, if you've not played the video games, um, the Telltale games, mm-hmm. the, the character kind of gets surprised by a zombie that's hidden in somewhere they shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. And that's how they get bitten. Um, yeah. 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 So, so that's a kind of preamble to all of this. We, we've agreed the 1978 one hasn't aged well, although it's got some, I mean, it's got some beautiful bits of social satire and everything in it. What did you think of the remake overall? I mean, it wasn't awful, awful. You know what I mean? Like, it's, Zack Snyder's made some shit films, and this it wasn't is, on this that is, kind this of This is part. possibly his best film, although there are some there are some bits of Watchmen which are still really good. He just ruins that with the bits he fucks up. But I, I think overall this is a decent film. I'm not going to lie. If you, get, if you sit me down in front of 300 with a steak and a pint, I'm in, a, for, I'm in for a really good afternoon just as a big shouty man. I think I <laughs> yeah. like I quite like three hundred to be honest. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think my problem with three hundred is the the fucking racism and fascism and total historical bollocks and CGI'd, uh, but but CGI'd abs. But I, I'm I, like you. I'm not going to lie. That film works from from minute one to minute one hundred and whatever. That that film does work. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, um, I think Zach Schneider's problem is is that he's his films. N- I'll never like his films are always a six out of ten. They're never an eight out of ten. And I think that's his problem. This this is just another example of that. Yeah, I mean, look, th- 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 look, there are some things I like about this film, right? The the cast is really good. Sarah Polly, who was the little girl in uh, 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 Baron Munchausen that we did on the pod, and she just yeah. recently won an Oscar for a screenplay. She's very good in the lead role. Always like Ving Rhames. Uh, the guy plays Phil from Modern Family, playing a different kind of uh, of, of character. Some solid supporting actors in the rest of it, like uh, Mekki Pfeiffer, 
sorry, Mackay, Pfeiffer, Jake Weber, Michael Kelly, Matt Frewer, all good people. I think it's well made. It's not as over, top, over the top as some of his other films. It does build some attention. There are some really intense like scenes. And I did like, you know, the guy who's like, they can see with binoculars, he's across the other side, but they can only communicate by writing signs from the top of his building. Yeah. Liked him. I love the dog. And so... There are some things I like about the film. I also like the fact that it, you know, it, because it re, because it got the zombie genre going again, it reignited Romero's career. He got to do another Dead trilogy, um, the first of which uh, is really good, um, Land of the Dead. Um, you know, and it was thanks to that that we got Shaun of the Dead, the book World War Z. Not so keen on the film. You know, the first we've seen is Walking Dead, really good, and Zombie Land. So th- there's some good stuff we've had on here, and this is nowhere near the worst remake we've done on this pod. Um. But it is, it's a bit fast forward, isn't it? It's like really frenetic. It's run, 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 run. It's almost like they kind of, it's almost like they're afraid to kind of slow down and let the kind of tension build up properly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think the importance, the important thing to remember here is that the title is called Hate Watch and I didn't hate it. Yeah. There's problems with it. It's, it's a zombie film. It's never going to be an absolute, you know, Oscar winning drama, but it, perfectly fine film if you want to watch a bit of an intense kind of zombie film yeah i mean i think the, the, the hate watch context here is that we've sat down with our arms folding on Zack snyder eh? fucking daring to remake a horror classic arms folded come on then how dare you and but i, I think it, it, i think it probably holds up um pretty much all the satire and social commentary from the original is gone um but i sympathize with the characters and there was some genuine kind of tension and excitement um it's you know, it was okay. Uh, what about the ending, though? Like, the, the ending that plays out over the credits. L- without spoiling the plot about what happens, how did you think that kind of... Without sort of final... spoiling the plot. Okay. So, so... Uh. So, obviously, the, the whole thing about, like, any any zombie films, there's always an element of kind of ironic uh, uh, and sort of bleakness about what happens to the characters. And this plays out here over the, um, over the credits... There's a camcorder showing them kind of, uh, you know the the you know you, you know how these films play out. Some, some some people survive, some people don't, and then and then you know at the end you wonder what's going to happen next, and they give you some hints as to what happens next over the credits. I I thought that was really clumsily done. I'm not sure if it was, I'm not sure if it was worth doing. I I, I think I know what they were going for, but I think it was a bit Zack Snyder's heavy hands smashing down again. What did you think of it? Um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot going on in the ending. Yeah. Um, there's, there's an incident with a chainsaw and then a bus and then there's a kind of, there's a, there's like a plot twist. There's there's, at least one big explosion. Yep. Um, but yeah, do you know what? It had kind of vibes, it had kind of apocalypto vibes. Yeah. Um, but apocalypto ending... And you don't like the ending apocalyptic, but you don't actually get to see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, you're like, oh fuck, not this. Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I just think, I, I think like like a number of Zack Snyder films, I felt like I know what he was going for, but I don't think he's quite got the um, the uh, the deafness of touch required to pull it off. Is what I would say. And I I think, but overall. I got to say, decent. I mean, I, I I can't I can't say this, I I can't say this. Ju- this was a hate watch in the end. It was actually not bad. Yeah, it's it's not terrible. 
it's it's not terrible and it, it, it helped some things to happen which we which we really enjoyed so Zack Snyder's one who I actually I want to do well because yeah. I like the ideas that he comes up with I love I the exactly idea that you mean. He, he did a film about the the 300 which weren't 300 Spartans at uh, the hot gates of Thermopylae and mm-hmm. he did Watchmen and he wanted to do a he wanted to do Superman and he wanted to do it properly it didn't work out because I don't entirely think it's his fault. I think DC and Warner Brothers are absolutely... DC hopeless, is a fucking terrible environment to try and pull he, off films like that. I like what he tries to do, and I think I think he's just a decent, all-right guy, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd go along with that. If 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 his next film comes out and is absolutely terrific, it, 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 I'd be more than more than happy to, 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 to give credit where it's due, like you. I, I, I'd go along with that, mate. Okay, well, look, that's what we have to say about the um, about the remake uh, that did happen. Here is a remake which we think uh, we should happen. And we talked about this before. Now, this is a bit of a cheat. The perfect sort of remake restoration to do for this period, the, the sort of the year that I turned 30, would have been uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But we've already done that. Uh, this is Alexander, which came out round about that time. So we're cheating it a little bit. But we're talking about Oliver Stone's Alexander starring Colin Farrell, which we think should be remade for the better. Now, what were your thoughts on, on the film, Alexander? It's shit. <laughs> it's a piece of shit. It's a hot piece of shit. Sorry, I just want to pause. If anyone listening can hear some snoring, it isn't me sleep talking through a podcast. It is my cock. <laughs> I can hear him. I can hear him now that you say it. Oh, that's fantastic. Waking up now. You're a fucking loud prick. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> such a loud thing and you're so small I'm sorry I was trying to keep a straight face when we were talking about fucking because he was snoring but then I looked over at Mac Mac is fast asleep and he must be having a dream about food or running and his tail was wagging in his sleep and I'm just trying to keep a straight face while the dog next to me is snoring and the dog next to me is having this excellent fucking dream oh, that's excellent right, does, boys, he, does, he, he, does he drool in his sleep when he's dreaming about food no, but you can tell when he's he's just looking at me now, like you're fucking talking about me. Right? <laughs> he does this thing where he's he's obviously having a bad dream and he goes, Hurr! "Oh, excellent, Hurr! excellent, excellent!" In his sleep for a few breaths, but no, you can tell when he's he he eats in his sleep. <laughs> he doesn't drool, but you can he just goes because <laughs> <laughs> somebody's eating food, yeah. and Obi just snores, doesn't he? Right, Fantastic. sorry. Uh, yes, Alexander. I have seen. I have seen Alexander. It's it's a hot piece of shit. Um, Wor- wor- worst flaws. What what's what are the what are the worst errors? You want to talk about the worst flaws? Is that they didn't get anyone to try and do a decent accent, and fucking Alexander of Macedon is talking with a fucking Irish accent. Oh, hordy gordy flordy. That's, oh no, yeah, that was we're a, fighting sorry. the Persians again. Oh, the th- oh, the but th- Jesus. The thing, the thing that's especially bad about that is that. It must have been Oliver Stone deciding to say to Colin Farrell, you've got so much acting to do outside of that, being Alexander. I don't want you to worry about an accent. Talking your natural accent will work around it. That must yeah, have been, must have been the reason. The problem with that is that it means that everyone else who's Macedonian needs to speak with an Irish accent as well, which is fine for Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, who is also Irish. It's okay for a number of the other actors who can do a decent Irish accent. Val Kilmer just about manages it hmm. fucking jared leto does not it's like why he was in it. why i mean it's not the only dodgy accent in the film because angelina jolie is as his mum who 
even though she's like there for like the whole story, she doesn't ever seem to age, which is weird. Um, she apparently comes from the same part of like ancient Macedonia as the Count from Sesame Street. How many places are you going to invade? One, uh, 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 two, uh, uh, uh. Fucking hell. Please, could we get a dialogue coach on set? It's an emergency. Um, so I think you've got a director who doesn't have quite enough feel for the material. I think that's the problem. I think, and there's a number of missteps. They're, they've, they've forgotten that what looked fine back then can sometimes look a little bit silly now. So watching a lot of big tough men in mini skirts doesn't really play. It's an error that Ridley Scott didn't make. I know it's ancient Rome, not ancient Greece, but it's not that far off. But he managed not to make it look camp when he did Gladiator. Um, I don't think Oliver Stone kind of dealt with that very well. I think uh, there's a lot... The writing, unfortunately, there's a lot of history to tell. I mean, even though Alexander you know, only lived to be 33, this is trying to cover his entire life and career. So it's trying to pack so much in. And in order to do that, they have these big scenes where everyone has these big speeches about, and now we have to send a governor to clinkity-clonkity-plank. And that's going to be terrible, isn't it? And it's like, you've got these guys, and it sounds like the school play where they're just kind of dropping large amounts of kind of exposition and these big speeches across rooms. And it's like, oh my God, this is... If you compare how people speak to each other in Gladiator to how people speak to each other in this, you just think, oh, they just haven't got the tone. They just haven't got the tone right for the story, you know? I did not say I met Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. I said I shook his hand once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you doing, life? Echoes in eternity. Yeah, yeah I fucking... It was, it was a fucking mess. I, I think if you're worried about Colin Farrell doing too much acting on a massive film like this with an enormous amount of time to film and shoot and that affecting his performance then you're a terrible director you're yeah. a coward of a director let so, him let him try and do a proper accent and trust that your professional actors can also do an accent colin farrell colin farrell can do that generic british accent that people do ancient stuff in he can do that of course he I can th- do that i know and i know it sounds bad because it sounds like we're sort of anglicizing a story from ancient history that's set like over a thousand, two thousand miles away, but it just—it's it no offense to the Irish. It, it's, it's, it just it's, doesn't yeah, work. It doesn't yeah. work. That this is the thing, right? Is it the accent just has to not distract people out of the story, and it doesn't. I mean, it and it, it's the the best one to do that in. I'm sorry, is the standard British accent because it just gives that oldie worldy feel. People have heard that accent enough that it just goes in one ear and out the other. Whereas with an Irish accent, you go, I fucking love the Irish accent. It's fucking great. But when you hear it in, in ancient Greece, you're going, why? Do you know what I mean? In the same way that if someone has a broad New York accent, you go, hang on, that, that doesn't sound right. Or Australian, yeah? And it's not the fault of that accent. It's fine. Those voices are great. They've got terrific voices in their own. You know, Colin Farrell acting in his own accent is is a wonderful thing in the, in the right setting. This isn't the right setting. And like... Martin Scorsese gets away with quite a few American accents in um, Last Temptation of Christ because they're just they're just generic enough to not distract you. But this is a huge fucking distraction. <laughs> Could you imagine the Last Temptation of Christ? But it was folk from the deep south. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, Lord, what are they doing to Jesus? <laughs> I think they turned some water into wine. <laughs> it's just it's not going to happen, right? Hey Ma. You'll never guess what they're doing to Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, so, you know, alternatives to this. I mean, I like Alexander, sorry, Colin Farrell as Alexander, and I do think he could have done it. There is a version of this that was going to be made. It's one of those ones where there were competing versions and only one got made, but there was going to be a version of this coming out at a similar time with Leonardo DiCaprio as Alexander. Would you have been interested in seeing that? Absolutely. There's bad news. The director attached to that no, was going to be Baz Luhrmann. No! <laughs> so, you know... Fuck! So, you know, we're in, you know, with a free hand waving a magic wand, making the way of like, obviously, I think Colin Farrell is a terrific actor. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is better. There's a lot of sort of things that if you just kind of got rid of those, it would still have worked. Um, so get the accents right, get the tone right, work out, you know, the... You know, you, you, you've got to have people in every, in every single part who don't sound like they're reciting Shakespeare for their primary school play, okay? It's got to sound natural when they do it. Um, the And I, I like Oliver Stone. He's not the right person. He hasn't got any feel for this material. Alternatives for this, Ridley Scott obviously could have done this better. The battle scenes in this in this are very good, but they still lack that sharpness of editing that you get from the very best people. Peter Jackson doing this instead of King Kong? Yes. Um, I mean, we did one of our one that got away, which was about Michael Mann doing a Greek epic. Now, he's a very American director, but he was going to do a, a version of the 300 story from a book called Gates of Fire. Um, I'd like to have seen him do it. I'm going to throw a name in here, Catherine Bigelow. She's got a massive gap in her filmography between 2002 and 2009. She she tried to do a Joan of Arc film, which we know from primary sources. One of the guys who worked on the film that that I you know had, had contact with, very well researched and very well cast. I think she could do it. She provided an excellent insight into that male psyche as well as brilliant action. Not Oliver Stone. That's the first thing. Not Oliver Stone. Make the costumes like less silly looking. I'm I'm sorry, Ancient Greece. Uh, you know, uh, everything dates. The 1970s look dated now, so I'm afraid that 300 fucking BC looks looks uh, dated as well. Uh, you just have to kind of find a better way of filming it. Um, you've, you've got to deal with that dialogue. How many times do we have to put up with Val Kilmer shouting by Zeus, by Hera, by fucking... That doesn't work. Um, his mum's got to look older than him once he's an adult. Um, the... If you're going to do it back then, I'll tell you what you've got to do. Do you remember Michael Mann's Ali film? Yes. It's not everyone's favourite. It's got some flaws. But what's brilliant about that Ali film is that it doesn't try to do his whole life. It, it concentrates on a pivotal period of his life. Yeah? Yes. And, and that period tells you what you need to know about who he was. And you can't do all of Alexander's campaigns from fucking Greece to India over the course of like eight years and millions of battles. Can't do it. You've got to kind of bring it down. I think there is still, there is some still, uh, there is still some good stuff in there. Um, do you remember with, with Anthony Hopkins like narrating as Ptolemy? Yeah. Yeah. Now the first thing you've got to do is you've actually got to make, I've watched, I've watched that film three times now. By the way, there is, there is a director's cut of Alexander which solves some of these problems. Yeah. The, uh, the narrative works a lot better. There's, you know, the, the, the characterization lands better. But these flaws are still there because they're there, right? So th there is a version of Alexander which is better than that theatrical cut if, for, for those who want to go out and look for it. But there's a problem where you have Anthony Hopkins narrating and if, if it's like, oh shit, that's Anthony Hopkins as a young man. 
but he's not he's not in it enough he's not kind of connected to to alexander enough in the in the in the scenes with alexander as a young man to kind of keep you in it so you got to fix that and i think the way they jumped around didn't quite work i think they needed a rewrite of the script where actually anthony hopkins narrating as an old man kind of takes you back from the story do you know what i mean maybe who killed um who killed alexander's father you go back to um, the old man narrating and get his perspective and then go back into the story. But you need to judge that right. You need to pace that right. That would need to be fixed. Um, Colin Farrell, yeah, maybe in different hands. But, you know, I think Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio would be better. I mean, to do that as a film in 2004, what else would you change? I think the problem is, is that they're, they're doing it in 2004 and Troy has just come out. Yeah. Now, Troy has its problems. Um, but it's a lot better than this. However, if you're trying to make a film that has all these battle sequences and is set in ancient Greece, then you're making it at the wrong time. Yeah. Because everyone's just seen Troy and gone, fucking hell, this is a this is a shittier version of Troy. Nobody nobody wants to see that. So <sighs> Well you say like give it five years? Yeah, genuinely. I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there are some things that set this apart from Troy. I mean, you get to see ancient Babylon. I've never seen another film, certainly not in modern cinema, that portrays ancient Babylon, and that's astounding to look at. There are some good battle scenes. The stuff, you know, the elephant battle scenes in India, that's all very good. So it does have a number of things that set it apart. So struggles with its timing a little bit. But I mean, if, if we're going to talk about the perfect time to make this, I've got to be honest, uh... Like the director's cut that that solves some of these problems by Oliver Stone, it's four hours long, right? Uh, so, wh- what is, what does this tell you? It tells you if you want to do this story, it's a prestige t- TV series now rather than a two and a half hour film then. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, big man. I think the problem with films nowadays is that sometimes stories just don't work because everyone loves a TV show. Hmm. So, when we do these remake restorations, we really need to think about how we would make it as a film because there's just two like there's there's films that you can redo that were just terrible and you can get the right cast and the right director but for things of this proportion you just need to yeah you just need to you need so, to make it a tv show so, don't you? yeah if you're gonna do it as a film back then you cut down the time frame and you use the narrator the old narrator as a narrative device to kind of take you past the things that you can't portray in detail portray a short period of time the pivotal moments alexander when things are unraveling with his men some of his great battles the death of his father those key events the rest of it you've got to kind of trim down otherwise it's kind of failing and you need you needed you need someone who's got a feel for the material and if you're going to do it five years later then it's probably leo probably leo playing the main part yeah but then it's baz fucking lerman yeah, but you know, look, we, it, we wave a magic wand, and it's not Baz Luhrmann. It's it's you take Ridley Scott to one side and say, Ridley, don't fucking do a good year, and don't fucking do Robin Hood. Here's this script, <laughs> fucking do it, mate. And Leonardo DiCaprio gets it made. Leonardo DiCaprio gets it a budget, gives you the free hand to do it because he literally gets a film, a hundred million dollar budget plus, one hundred and fifty million dollar budget plus, and a four hundred million dollar gross. Leo's the guy that gets it done. And even though he's in his thirties by the t- when this film gets made at that perfect time, he looks young. He always looks really youthful. That that's how this film gets done. Leo, five years later, directed by Ridley Scott, instead of two or three of the shit films Ridley Scott did at that at that time. Done and done. Built up. <laughs>
That's all for this month's Double Real Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adams. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McCoy. Matchstick Men is available on all the usual digital services and can still be bought on disc if you look around. Information on Shekhar Kapoor's Pani is confined to various online articles, but a quick Google will find some fascinating concept art from the development stage. Tune in next week for the big conversation where we discuss who we think are the most overrated film directors of all time. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.